I want to begin today by reading to you a personal mission statement, and it's written by a young African missionary. And he did not write it so that one day I could read it to you, or it could be used in a sermon or published in a book, though I think it's been used in quite a few sermons at this point, and probably in more than a few books. In fact, it wasn't found hanging on his wall, you know, where everybody could see it. It was, it was found in his most personal papers. And it was found in his desk by his friends who were going through his most personal papers after he was murdered for preaching the message of the mission, which is the message, if you've missed it, of a risen Jesus. It's the message of a Jesus who not only was himself raised from the dead, but who himself contains the power to raise dead things. And that is a really important concept for us today. If you miss that, you miss the whole deal. Jesus can raise dead things, and by dead things, I mean dead anything. Yes, dead bodies, but dead marriages, dead joy, dead hope, dead feelings, dead conscience, dead finances, dead what? Fill in the blank. Because the reality is that every one of us here today are going, yeah, but not dead. And I want you to hang on to that. Hold on to that through this message. This man went out. He preached the message of a Jesus who can do absolutely anything, and he died. And then his friends found this in his desk. I'm going to read it to you. Then I'm going to ask you, what kind of a person writes something like this? And not only writes it, but then goes out and lives it, even when it costs him his life. He says this. He says, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line and the decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as such, I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, Smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. My face is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up stored up, prayed up, and paid up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till everyone knows, work until He stops me, and when He comes for His own, He will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been clear. He will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been clear. So what kind of a person writes something like that? And then not only writes it, but then goes out and he lives it, even when it costs him his life. I think the answer to that question is one who actually believes that Jesus is not only raised from the dead, but he contains within himself the power to raise dead things. Dead anything. Dead anything. And honestly, the more that I think about it, the more I pray this through and play this through in my head, 
the more I've come to believe that trusting in that and believing in that and then living in light of that is a prerequisite, guys, to my ability, to your ability, to our ability, to the ability of our families, to the ability of this faith family in our families, in our offices, in our schools, in our church, in our community, and in this world to actually accomplish God's mission. Why? Because when we think that God's hands are tied, that Jesus is handcuffed in this area, uh, we don't even try. But if he can do anything... Think about it. If there's somebody in your family, and there probably is, or somebody in your office, or some one of your friends, okay, that in your heart of hearts, if you were really honest, not even Jesus can reach, what are you doing to reach that person? Can I answer it for you? It's going to be quick. Nothing. If you're struggling with an addiction that not even Jesus can cure you from, can deliver you from, can heal you from, well, you're done. If Jesus cannot bring life into a dead marriage... It will remain dead. You won't even try if that's, well, what you think. You can play that out in any different category, can't you? You can play that out with nations. You know, we've been talking a lot about Haiti this year and trying to get everybody to go to Haiti. Get everybody to go to Haiti. Go to Haiti, by the way. Go. But a lot of people look at Haiti and they go, okay, corrupt government, all kinds of cultural issues overwhelming need. I mean, good grief. You are overwhelmed by the need. I'm not so sure that even Jesus can do anything here, and we're done before we start. But if we believe that our Savior not only can do anything, but will do anything, and here's the qualifier, and it's big, that He, in His greater wisdom sees, will advance His mission well, then there's always hope, isn't there? Then there's always reason to believe, right? And not even just to believe now, but there's reason to fight. The big idea for today is simply this. Jesus Christ can do anything, and, well, that then changes everything. And like our missionary friend, you see, when we believe that, when we internalize that, when we begin to learn to live in light of that, we can give even our lives to this Jesus. Why? Because he both can and will give it back to us on resurrection day. We pick up our study today in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32. Where Luke says this, he says, now as the apostle Peter, who once again becomes the main character in the narrative, it's been Paul, now it's back to Peter, went here and there among them all, meaning among all of these different churches that are springing up amongst all of these different cities outside of the main church city of Jerusalem, Peter, who's traveling around visiting these different churches, came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, which is a city in Judea, so it's not that far for him to go there. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for, and it matters, eight years who was afflicted with a hangnail. He had a common cold. He's paralyzed. Now, what does that mean? Well, practically speaking, it means that at the very least his legs are dead. Can we agree on that? So now what happens next in the story is Peter goes, oh my goodness, you know, if I had known that it wasn't a hangnail, I wouldn't have even come. I mean, a common cold, Jesus, probably. But this is embarrassing. I mean, this is humiliating. I can't believe you guys called me in here. How am I going to get out of this jam? I feel sorry for the Lord because he's clearly up in heaven, wringing his hands, freaking out, going, what did you do to me? This is going to defame my reputation. You know that I can't handle something like this.
There he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter, who is clearly sensing that the Lord desires to heal this man, said to him, Aeneas, and now notice who does the healing. Jesus Christ heals you. And then he says this, and I love this word because it's language of resurrection. He says to him, rise, rise, rise and make your bed. Not rise and enter rehab, and then eventually you'll gain the strength and you'll learn how to walk again, and then you'll be able to... No, just get up and do it. Rise and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas rose. And now notice what happens next, because this tells us why Jesus performed this particular miracle. It says that all the residents of Lydda, the city in which this guy lives, and of Sharon, this nearby location, saw this raised Aeneas, and they turned in faith is the idea to the Lord, which means what? Because it's a hard truth. It means that Jesus did not heal Aeneas merely because Jesus is merciful or merely because Jesus, uh, I don't know, loved Aeneas or merely because Jesus looked at Aeneas and he looked at his family and he's like, my goodness, eight years of this? I mean, you know, this is devastating in our day today, but back then, wow, I'm feeling it for you, bro, and I'm going to heal. Now, all those things may be true, But Jesus healed him because he saw in his greater wisdom, hey, if I heal this guy, my gospel is going to go on fire in this city. That's the best thing, therefore, for me to do. And since I can do anything, rise. Make your bed. Walk around. Go tell some people what happened. That would be good. What does that tell us? It tells us that the mission is the issue, and the mission is always The issue, it tells us that Jesus comes to these decisions, heal, not heal, raise, not raise, deliver, not deliver. And in his greater wisdom, then, he sees which one will best further his mission, both in us, and that's a big part, and through us, and then whichever the mission determines, if you will, is what the Jesus who can do anything, therefore, then, does. He's all about furthering his mission. And I want you to think about that for a minute from your own experience, because the reality is that a lot of us have lived just long enough to have gone through some very difficult seasons of time, seasons of time where we prayed, dear God, deliver me, please deliver me. And then again, we prayed it. And again, we prayed it. And sometimes in anger, we prayed it. And sometimes even just faithlessly, we prayed it. And at some point, maybe we gave up and and he didn't deliver us, at least not when we wanted him to or how we wanted him to. And yet we look back on those experiences and we realize, my goodness, that was the most Christ-forming season of time in my entire life. And though I would not try to seek to revisit that, and I don't want to relive it, today I wouldn't change it. Today I would leave it. He used that, and it was more effective than it would have been had he healed me. He claimed more of me through that than rise and walk. It's about the mission, and Jesus will either bring dead things to life or not based upon which one he sees in his greater wisdom will be best for the mission, and not just for the mission then, but also for us. And the challenge is for us to trust him. 
that he will make the right decision. But what else does this story teach? Because it teaches us, I think, also that Jesus can, in fact, do anything. And therefore, there's always hope. Therefore, there's always cause to believe and even to fight. See, if Jesus can do anything, then that changes everything. And just in case we didn't get it from that story, now he gives us an even more dramatic one in verse 36. He says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Okay, do you have a child named Dorcas, anybody? Not a great sounding name, is it? What are you thinking about naming the baby? Dorcas. Not much to say after that, is there? It's just, that's it. But it means gazelle. So it conjures a beautiful image, a graceful image, and this was clearly a beautiful, graceful woman. Luke tells us that. He says that she was full of good works and acts of charity, but now look what happens. Luke says that that in those days, in the midst of her good works and acts of charity, uh uh-oh, she became ill, not just ill, no, now she even died. And so now it's not just the legs that are dead, it's everything. And when they had washed her body, they began the ceremony of embalming, if you will. That was step one. When they had washed her dead body, they interrupted that process, and they laid her dead body in an upper room. And then, since Lydda was near Joppa, which is where they're at, so it's only about 10 miles away, what do they do? The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. I mean, can you imagine if like you were there and you became one of the two guys? Hey, I've got a great idea. I want you and your buddy to run 10 miles through the desert. Yeah, I know know it's 9,000 degrees, but no, seriously, because Dorcas is dead. And we're thinking, you know, maybe Jesus will heal her now. Well, that would have been a good idea before she died, don't you think? Like, It sounds like a fool's errand, but it's not a fool's errand. And that's something we have to grapple with. That's something we need to get our minds around. That's something we need to live in light of. Wait a minute, it's a fool's errand. Yeah, but wait, hold, time out, we're talking about Jesus. So he can do anything that changes everything? These guys go. Right on. The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come with us without delay. And so Peter rose, and Peter comes, and, and he went with them. And, he, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room where Dorcas's dead body lay, and all the women stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made for them while she was still alive and with them. But Peter then put them all outside the room, and he calls the two guys in and says, Guys, you didn't tell me she was dead. Hangnail, yes. Sniffles, common cold, uh, probably. Dead? It's ridiculous. Who believes that? Look, I just go out there and tell them all I'm going to pray like through the night, and then I'm going to get out of here by climbing out of the upper window, and I'm going to sneak away. I don't want to humiliate the Lord here because he's up in heaven, and he's wringing his hands, and he's freaking out. That's never his posture. That's my posture. He's not limited the way that we are. Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed to the one who alone can do 
anything. And then turning to the body, you hear that? To the body. She's dead. He said, he speaks to the dead. And he speaks resurrection. Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and, here it is again, raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he he presented her alive. And then what happened? Because this is why the miracle was performed. It's about the mission. And then it became known throughout all of Joppa that Jesus had raised Dorcas from the dead, and many believed in the Lord. There it is. And then Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And you say, well, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that that Jesus did not raise Dorcas from the dead because she was a really awesome Christian who did amazing things for people? That's exactly what I'm saying. I think the uncomfortable reality is that sometimes Jesus lets really awesome Christians who have done really amazing things for people die. That's uncomfortable. It sounds so clinical. It misses all of the injury. But he doesn't do it without denying the injury. And it only sounds heartless until you begin to understand that the mission that he's concerned about in us and through us is more valuable than our lives. Our African missionary friend got that. How do you compare the things of eternity with the pursuits of this world? How do you do that? How do you compare life that never ends with life that ends so quickly? It's shocking. How do you compare that which you have for all of eternity that is infinite and that is altogether glorious, that is undefiled and beyond our imagining with what we've got here? See, it starts making sense when you think in those categories. And what the gospel calls us to do, guys, is to think in those categories and to organize our lives in light of them. It sounds heartless until you realize that. And it sounds heartless as well until you realize that the one who dies in faith in Christ, Jesus allows to die and then personally welcomes them into his heaven. And there they're not pining away for earth. Paul comes and he has a conversation with us in Philippians that is so difficult for us to grab. It's only through the imagination of faith that we can begin to understand it. But he's grappling with the idea of, do I need to stay with you guys? Okay, no, I know that I've got some good work to do, but let me tell you where my heart is. My heart is to move on. My heart is to be with Christ. My heart is to be in heaven. Who says that? We cling so tightly to this life. We cling so tightly to the things of this life. And Jesus is forever coming to us and saying, hey, this life is not all that there is. Far from it. Far from it. Death for the believer in Jesus very well may may be the single greatest healing experience that you and I can have. That's a stunning thought, and it can only be accomplished by a Jesus who can do anything. See, and if he can do anything, well, then then everything's possible. Everything's open. There's always hope. There's always reason to believe and even fight. It's awesome. 
number of years ago now, there was a family who enrolled their kids at our school, and they started to show up on Sunday mornings. And uh, I think I probably ought to tell you, they've since moved. They live in another city, and it broke my heart to see them go, honestly. I hate it when you guys move. I'm not going to lie. I don't like it. But when they started coming to the school and started coming to the church, he was a believer, she was not a believer, and she was a raging alcoholic. Mostly a non-functional alcoholic, so unreliable from day to day to day that he had to bring his mother in from some other place far, far away to live with them because, you know, who knew? It's Monday. What's Monday going to be like? Well, Monday was pretty good. What's Tuesday going to be like? No idea. Roll the dice. As we got to know them, and by the way, they were very open with their story in the end, but as we got to know them, I I came to find out that that the husband had spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars on a variety of different rehab programs. I remember one that she went through, and um, and I can't figure out the chronology of it all, but I remember we're praying for, please, God, deliver her from this awful, consuming addiction that is literally killing her and her family. So we're praying, oh, be working, be working, be working, you know, and she got out and that day disappeared (laughs) and went drinking. It's like, really? At some point, the state of Florida came to them and said, look, we we know what's going on in your home. We understand your situation. I think they'd pulled her over and she had the kids in the car at some point. And they said, look, here's the thing. If we pull your wife over in the car and your kids are in the car, we're taking your kids away. You just need to know that. Sobering, isn't it? But this was all consuming. Remember, I was driving home from work. They live like half a mile from us. And we live over off of Bayview Drive in the Coral Ridge neighborhood. And I was driving home from work, and I, which I never do in the middle of the day. I don't know why I was going there, but it's really odd. And, and I never go Federal Highway either, but I did. So I took Federal Highway. I went up to Northeast 26th Street. I took a ride at Northeast 26th Street. I'm heading east now toward Bayview. And if you know that area, there's a Walgreens right there on the corner, and there's a liquor store in the Walgreens, right? So I'm driving up Bayview past the liquor store, and I see her walking up Northeast 26th Street, And she's got this look on her face like she's coming out of her skin. And I know where she's going. And she doesn't see me. So I turn the car around, and I got stuck at the light. By the time I finally made it into the Walgreens parking lot, she was already in the liquor store. So I backed the car up, assuming she was going to go home. I see her come out of the store. She's got the bottle in the brown paper bag deal. But instead of walking back home, she took off and went around the corner and started walking up Federal Highway north. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, you know, now what am I going to do? So I pull out onto Federal Highway and I literally I pull up next to her and I pulled my car over the curb onto the sidewalk. And you just got to trust me on this. When you have a drinking problem and you're about to fall off the wagon and you've got the bottle in your hand, okay, the last guy you want to see is me. You don't want to see me. I'm the last guy. Long list of people, last Tom. I thought she was going to die. I rolled the window down and I said, you need to get in my car. I I know what's in the bag. I I saw you. I, I waited and you need to get in my car. Don't do this. You can't do this. Get get in the car, please. I'm begging you to get in my car. We will drive to my house. Beth is at the house. And the three of us will get you through this moment. But don't do that. 
I said, I even tried this. I said, can't you see that God sent me to you? Look, I'm never here in the middle of the day. I never come this particular way. It's odd, don't you think? She took off. Called her husband. We spent the next couple of hours, him in one car, me in another, driving through all these apartment complexes and all these businesses and looking behind dumpsters and all kinds of stuff. Didn't find her. Eventually, she showed up at home. It got so bad that at some point, what he started to do is, when she would fall off the wagon, she would go on a binge, okay? He would take away all of her keys to the house, to the cars, and he would cancel all of her credit cards. He would turn off her debit card, and if he could, he'd steal what little cash she had on her and lock her out of the house. And she would disappear for days, a couple of times, for like two weeks. And somehow she would drink. And somehow she would eat at least a bit, and she was sleeping somewhere. He would drop the kids off in the morning, and he'd come and see me, walk in my office and sit across the desk and just weep. Tom, what do I do? I don't think this is ever going to change. And honestly, in my heart of hearts, and I didn't say this out loud at the time, but I didn't either. I did not think the story would end well. And time and again, we would pray for this woman, God, first, bring her to you. Second, deliver her from this thing that is going to kill her in the not-too-distant future, and that is killing this family. And then it started to happen, and it didn't happen like flipping a light switch. It wasn't immediate, but, you know, I mean, he used to have to drag her to church, man. And, and she was clearly very unhappy because, you know, I can see you, by the way. And so once my eyes adjust, I can see, you know, so like when you yawn, I see it. When you're sleeping, I see it. If you're tuned in, I see it. And I used to look at her, and she would be sitting there all twisted like a pretzel and just looking at me like, She's just enduring the experience. Oh, my goodness, this is just something I have to get through every week. And I started to notice that she started to come untangled. She started to pay attention. And he started to notice she was actually willing to go. It wasn't such a big fight. And he said, I think she's listening. You know, like, I don't want to say it too loud. And... But I think it's true. Multiple conversations with people on our staff, multiple conversations with Didi, with Barb Ingram, with Dave Ingram, with me, with a whole host of us. And little by little, she came to understand that this Jesus is real, that this Jesus lives. Yeah. And the Spirit awakened her to the reality that He lives for her. And she gave her life to Him. Really and truly, not like I'm playing like I'm a Christian, but she was very humble, guys. Very authentic. And God filled her with His Spirit, and she began to believe. Now, I wish that He would have just delivered her automatically, but apparently in His great wisdom, He knew it would be better to do it a different way. I found another lady in our congregation who was a recovering alcoholic who also has left, which is a major bummer, but anyway, and I said, look, you've got to be friends with this person. Here's the story, here's the deal, and she just swept in and like took over, and she got her in the right AA group and, you know, sponsors and all of this stuff, and they would talk all the time, and whenever she'd have a craving, she'd be on the phone and all this stuff, and we surrounded her with prayer, and we surrounded her with community, 
And for the first time, she believed that she could do it and wanted to do it. And she'd go for three months and then she'd fall off the wagon. But three months, like, you know, that's better than three hours. And she'd get up and brush herself off and she'd fight on. And then she'd go for six months and fall again. But but she knew she'd seen the light, right? So then she'd get up and brush herself off and she'd go a year. And now it's been, I don't know, five or six years maybe. It's amazing. A couple of months ago, I was sitting up here and uh, preaching away. And just like I can see you, you know, I looked out and... And I saw her. She was in town and she was sitting right there. And I honestly just wanted to quit the message and jump off the stage and run over and grab her and give her a hug, not only because I personally find her courageous and frankly just really delightful. She is an awesome woman. But mostly because there is a lot of chaos in this room, guys. There are a lot of difficulties in this congregation And I don't know the half of it, but I know a lot more than almost any of you. And I felt like in the midst of that, it was sort of like she was the angel of the Lord to me. She appeared from out of nowhere. I was totally not expecting her. And what was her message? It's Tom. There's always reason to hope. There's always reason to believe. There's always reason to fight. This Jesus that you profess, this Jesus that you proclaim, this Jesus who has purchased you at the cost of his own life, this Jesus who was himself raised, contains within himself the power to raise the dead. And here's the deal. He does that. He does that. And I see that in her. Listen, if Jesus can do anything, well, then he can do everything, right? I mean, everything is different. And he can and he will do it when he in his greater wisdom sees that that's the best way to accomplish his mission. And we need to grow so close to him, so in touch with him, walk so carefully together with him that we trust him no matter what his decision may be. It's always the best and right one. It is right for the mission and it's right for me, and it's right for you. There's always hope. And a lot of us need to hear that. And then like this woman, need to humble ourselves and repent of our sin and give ourselves to Jesus unreservedly and let him change our lives and our families and this church and the city, and the world. So how did you fill in the blank at the beginning of the message? Yeah, Jesus can raise the dead this, and the dead that, and the dead this, and the dead that, and the little skeptical me says, but not this, not that. Really? Is he freaking out? Sweating, he's like sweating. Oh, can you get, the angels are bringing him fans. Oh, cool down, cool down. Bring me a tea. Really? Is that your Jesus? Because that's not Jesus. That's not him. We came to worship today and to serve a Jesus who can do anything, which means there's always hope. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would awaken us from our slumber, that you would destroy in us the mundane, that you would give us a vision of our Savior as he really is, high and lifted up, holy, 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 Lord, and never wringing his hands or stressed, in control of it all and working it all together, God, for good, for the good of his mission, and for our good as well. Give us faith in that Jesus. Give us peace in that Jesus. Give us hope through that Jesus. Let us find our joy in that Jesus. Let us be satisfied in that Jesus. And let us recognize that even our lives are not too much to hold back, but rather ought to be given to that Jesus. And let us invest them in things that last forever. Let us know that Jesus, Lord and serve him for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.